We got a special episode of Culture Hackers here with my good friend Alan Heyman. I'm really excited about this episode. Alan is a guy I was a colleague with in a few businesses like our co-working space, Affinity Lab, and our web development company, Articulated Impact. And he's had many roles since then, uh, including being vice president of communications for the Humane Society. And he's held various roles in government offices in D.C. He was an executive leader at D.C. Water. Um many roles and now he's an executive coach and i'm excited to talk to him about the culture of coaching so without further ado here's my conversation with alan Heyman. hey culture hackers i'm so excited for this episode because this is a friend and colleague that i've had for geez it's got to be more than 20 years yeah decades at this point yeah <laughs> decades decades alan is uh a man of many hats we'll probably get into some stories of some different roles here but I really want to start off by first uh, embarrassing Alan because he knows this already, but that he's one of two, only two people that I've ever said, you should run for president. <laughs> and I've, I, I, I keep coming back to it because you've got such this like elder statesman quality, the wisdom, you're grounded, you're centered. I mean, Alan and I worked together at Articulated Impact and Affinity Lab co-working space and web development space. Alan was COO and it was always cool under pressure. We would get some crazy situations that we'd be in. Alan would always be the one to just keep everything calm, steady on the level. Um, so I have to ask again, Alan, would you please run for president? Wow. Well, okay. So the first thing is I've got to ask who the other person is and whether I've met them. Uh, and the second is I'm glad that you and I have known each other long enough and been through enough presidential administrations that... I'm taking your question as a compliment uh, versus, you know, you might not be tempted to do that in this day and era of, of, of politics. Um, but honestly, I've never really seen the need to be out in front like that. And I've worked for elected officials before. And my sweet spot is, is the person sort of standing toward the back and, and helping to make the magic happen and making sure that everything is on track rather than, you know, being the standard bearer, being the person whose name is on the door. Uh, being the person whose family has no privacy, you know, in life, honestly. Oh, I, your life would be horrible. I don't don't get, get me wrong. <laughs> I'm I'm saying that a I don't want you to be selfish because it's very selfish for you to think about your family, <laughs> and <laughs> um and you know I was thinking about remember that mo was it the motto you had was make no little plans. Yeah, from so Daniel like, this, this is the biggest plan you could probably make. True. True. <laughs> Well, yeah. the, uh, just to answer your question, the other person, I'll out her. She knows it already. JJ Virgin. I think she could be it because I think that a a tall, funny businesswoman could really crush it. And that, that's what she is. Yeah. And what a commentary on the age that we're living in, that we think about these folks and we admire them. And we think in terms of their ability to do the job and be effective at it, which is a whole different set of skills from what it takes to actually get the job. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Well, I want to go into some of the different roles you've had. We're going to get into into the, the coaching and culture of coaching. I'm excited to talk about that. Um, but what would you say your besides the coaching now, what's been your favorite role over the years? Oh, wow. Well, I had a number of them that were just fascinating for different reasons. And some of them worked out great and others didn't. You know, I was just writing uh, last week that I've I've resigned from eight jobs and I've been fired from two. So uh, wow. You know, 
have some experience with this thing that is leaving a position. And uh, it actually helps me when I've got clients who are looking to make a transition of that nature as well. Um, but I have to say the, the thing that comes to mind as a highlight just instantly was uh, when I was running communications for the uh, Water and Sewer Authority in DC. Because uh, I had a great team. I had, you know, the, the the best kind of empowerment from my boss at the time. And we had so much room to run with because there was just so much opportunity. You had an organization where it either didn't have a reputation or the reputation was negative. So there was really nowhere to go but up. And I think we did some amazing work. And I left that job over 10 years ago. And I'm having dinner in a couple of weeks with a few members of my former team who are still there. So that kind of speaks to the strength of the experience for me. Yeah, let me ask you about that buzzword you just said, empowerment. Like that's a, a lot of people talk about that, especially in my space and the culture space, um, yeah. empower your employees. And, and so you're coming from an experience where you actually had that and saw that. Um, yeah. Is it as simple as a boss just saying, go go do whatever you got to do? Like what, what does that mean at the end of the day to execute well on empowerment? I think that's part of it, but not all of it. So one, as they're saying, go do what you need to do, they have to mean it because a lot of bosses say it, but they don't mean it. And they're following <laughs> up with the micromanagement or there's, you know, ambiguity of, of instruction. Uh, two, there has to be clarity of expectations and there has to be a meeting of the minds in terms of how often we're going to be checking in and on what. So as the leader, you've got to let your folks know what you want to hear about and how often and why. And then you tell them, go do the thing. It's, it's not enough to simply say, you know, take this and run with it. And I never want to hear about it again, because then what happens if the employee runs into interference or there's an obstacle that only you can clear out of the way for them, or they need you to help troubleshoot. So you have to remain engaged, but not too engaged. It's kind of a, kind of a sweet spot there. So do you think, do you think in, uh, empowerment is essentially trust plus delegation? I have never heard it expressed in a formula, but I think that's probably about right. And maybe, maybe a little bit of inspiration on the side, you know, just to, to be able to sprinkle in as needed. Uh, as in, part of my empowerment in that role was, given that it was new to me and new to the organization, was somebody else that I trusted, respected, and admired saying, I believe in you. You know, I know you can do this. And I know this. I know you can do this now better than anybody else could. Uh, that goes a long way when you're having a little bit of that doubt. Do you think it goes the other way around? Like, is there something to managing up? Is it is it any of the of the employees' responsibility, or is that all on bosses for empowerment? Well, sometimes you figure out what the boundaries are around your position by pushing into them and 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 having kind of a you know a resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some bosses who maybe don't know how to do this, or they don't know how to do this for everybody who's working for them. So if you're in a relationship of trust where there is a dialogue that's possible express a need, see where it goes. Uh, and, and you might be surprised by the result. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other like buzzwords that come to mind that you've, 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 you're working, you've been in the corporate space, you coach in the corporate space, like what kind of words are tend to be coming up? Well, I can tell you, I hear a lot about uh, managing up and you already mentioned it. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that collection, certainly the managing sideways, which is something that people could stand to be talking a lot more about, and maybe they're not. So what does that mean? Uh, well, so we all know what managing down is. You know, yeah. you have a chain of command, you have people who report to you, you manage them. And we know what managing up is in the sense that uh, we have to figure out how the boss operates and how to fit into their universe and be effective. Managing across, at least the way I refer to it, is when you're sitting on an executive team, let's say. It's not enough to just hunker down and, and, and be in finance all day long when you're the CFO. 
because the organization is not going to succeed that way and neither you. You need the general counsel. You need the chief operating officer. You need marketing. And figuring out what those needs are and what you can offer everybody across the table is managing across. And that's how you have an executive team rather than just a collection of siloed individuals. And I've worked in different types of organizations that have had either of those. And the, you know, the impact and the difference is pretty obvious. So how, how do you manage sideways? You get to know people. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's not simple, but it's not easy. You know, you know, it's it, so funny about that. I was, I was one time cons- uh, speaking like to an EO group or, uh, and um, this guy starts explaining the, 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 the problem that he's having. And I just stop him at one set at one point and say, stop, stop. What's clear is the two department heads hate each other and the whole room erupts in laughter because they had been hearing about these issues and issues and it's what you're saying it comes down to it's like do people connect well and work well together yeah and look i'm not an expert on interpersonal relationships and i've done plenty of things wrong throughout my career and leadership for sure just like the next person and i know there's often a way in you know i had a hard charging uh cfo that i was sitting next to in one organization when i was the head of marketing and communications and the issue was basically, as I saw it when I first came in, I was newer to the team than he was. I didn't feel like he really had any use for me or for my team or, or what we had to offer the organization. So why would he bother you know, giving me any of his time? Versus I certainly needed his because my organization that I was leading had a budget and you know it had financial needs and it needed to hire people and it needed supplies and equipment. Come to find out, there's a lot actually that a CFO in an organization needs from the head of marketing and communications in a public-facing organization, because this is how you get the word out to raise the money that the CFO needs to make the organization run properly. Mm-hmm. So whether it's something as simple as the formatting of a budget book to how do you explain this difficult budget thing to an audience that you're demanding more and more of over time, that's not a natural skill set for somebody with a finance background. So it turns out we had plenty to offer each other and plenty to talk about. It was just figuring out what that was that was the beginning of the process. It's almost like you're a diplomatic statesman of some sort, Alan. You certainly are. You certainly are. And I think that's every person's job as a leader and as an executive. And we don't talk about that enough. It is about diplomacy. It is about that kind of international relations, if you want to put it that way, where your nation is finance and your nation is legal or whatever that is. Uh, you got to reach across. You got to find a way to connect. Otherwise, it isn't going to work. And I recognize that that process is not something that comes naturally to everybody. If you're not as social as some people, if you're more of an introvert like I am, or if you have a highly technical background where you're used to spending all of your time in places where people have that similar background to yours, it's something you have to learn and grow into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 funny that you and I both went to coaching school out of articulated and I I I found it by when we had all those businesses at Affinity Lab the co-working space um shameless plug for us that some people said it was one of the first if not the first co-working spaces in America yes. um the uh that I I found that just helping those individual businesses was more exciting than actually developing the websites that we were doing as a as that main business that that was how I got into it like what what spurred you into it My coaching origin story is one of my favorite stories, actually. Uh, And it's a story of uh, kind of failure and redemption, if you will, Uh, in that uh, now at this point, probably about 10 years ago, I was running communications for a large international nonprofit organization. And I'm in my mid-30s. And believe you me, I thought I had arrived. Uh, I thought I was going to retire from this job someday. 
This was an organization that was known and respected around the world. My parents were donors to that organization when I was a kid. Mission was personally aligned with the way I was and the future I wanted to see in the world. And I had friends working there. And this breathtaking scope of authority that I had with, you know, more than 100 employees and offices in different cities and all of this. And within about nine months, I realized I was drowning and I needed some really serious support to be able to succeed in the position I was in or I wasn't going to make it. So I was chatting at the time with somebody I was close with on the executive team who was not my boss, by the way, which should tell you probably something. Uh, and she was going to coaching school at Georgetown. And I did not know what coaching school at Georgetown was. But it was significant enough to her to take away time and attention from this very demanding job she was doing. So I paid attention. And so I learned what coaching was. I hired one of her classmates and I became that person's second ever paying client. And there was no Zoom back then. So I'd come home to my, you know, my house, sit down on the couch at seven or eight o'clock at night and call her. And what she helped me do was incredibly simple, but so effective. And that was to help me unpack the difference between my stuff we all have it. You know, you have a podcast built on it and what the institutional stuff was that was never going to change like gravity. So I left the job ultimately because of the work that I was doing with the coach, got in with a previous employer, was much happier, but never lost the lesson of what coaching gave me. So a few years later, when I had the chance to go get a coaching certificate of my own, I did. And, you know, ended up starting my own practice back in 2019 and haven't looked back ever since. So I want to rewind on that story because I think it would be interesting for for some of the listeners who who are leaders and executives. You said drowning. Yes. Um, how did you? What were the indicators to you that you're drowning? Well, I looked to my family on most nights like I was miserable. So that was something. That was an outward warning sign. You know, even to the point where my father-in-law mentioned it. You know, over the holidays to my wife, he noticed something was not quite right. Mm. But there was this sense of kind of how am I moving the ball? How am I in this big international organization actually advancing the purpose that I came here to advance when I have 45 to 50 meetings a week on my calendar on average? Most of them are in my office. So I'm not getting out and seeing around me and the rest of the organization. And I'm feeling like, you know, the classic middle manager syndrome of I'm spending all of my time and energy on timesheets and status meetings and travel expenses and things of that nature. I couldn't tell whether I was making a difference in the role and it was grinding me down. So that's kind of the feeling that I had. And if there's somebody listening right now who's in that similar kind of situation <clears throat> and in their mind, that's like, look, Alan, that's just the job. You couldn't cut it. Do you think that's true? Or do you think there was an opportunity to shift that if somebody's in that kind of drowning role? Maybe. Again, the difference between my stuff and the stuff that wasn't going to change about the organization. Mm. <clears throat> so I think looking at the context matters. I think looking at what other people may have done in the role before you matters. And I think looking at what is within your ability to influence also matters. And I had indicators throughout my entire experience there that there were things that ought to have been, in my opinion, within my ability to influence, but were not. So I was in a high-level communications role. I had expert communicators working you know, in my chain of command. And I had a CEO who was line editing press releases. I had executives who were questioning, you know, a couple hundred dollar travel expenses uh, in an organization whose revenue was running to the hundreds of millions a year. So I didn't have a lot of space to move around in. And part of my work with the coach was understanding where those boundaries were and what was likely to change and what was likely not to change. And 
you know, we might be tempted sometimes as coaches to reach through that screen and say, dude, you got to quit your job. You have to. It's not what we do. That's not the role. Um, but I will say that sometimes through the coaching process, it becomes pretty apparent to the client that things are not sustainable. And that's that's where change comes from. And that's what happened to me. Yeah. You mentioned influence in there. You know, I, I hear the word, the buzzword buy-in thrown in around a lot in organizations. And I personally hate it because I think it's a sales mentality and mm -hmm. sales goes into, nobody likes to be sold anything. And so did you find like a distinction or do you currently like between influence and, and, and manipulation? Because it seems like they could, especially in the, that, that kind of corporate environment, when you're trying to get your way and trying to get things for your budget and for your team and things like that. Um, like what would you say there's a distinction there between the two? I think so. Um, the outcome of course is the same and that you're trying to get what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, it's sort of a question of what do you have the ability to demand versus what are you trying to request? And so you start to think about what is within the bounds of your authority as the head of an organization within an organization. Can you put processes in place that will affect others and expect them to live with it? Or is there some sort of a change management process that you want to take them through and help them understand why this is actually the right thing to do? Mm. Um, I personally was not a believer in just sort of like handing down decrees and, and kind of like slamming my fist on the table and saying, no, this is the way it's going to be. Because uh, I'm more collaborative than that, but some people have different styles. So I would always try to help the other person understand why this, let's say, process that I was putting in place to benefit my staff and the entire organization might seem like an inconvenience right now, or it might seem like a different way of doing things or a departure, but actually was the right call for the long term. Uh, and I didn't, I was never hesitant to have that conversation, but at some point the conversation has to end because the change has to occur and life has to move on. So uh, I think at some point you realize kind of like when you're doing a public awareness campaign or trying to, you know, trying to move a new product, you're, you're not going to win everybody. So yeah. you have to realize that, uh, you know, at a certain point, that's not going to happen. And you you, you kind of keep going with the 80% the of people who are on your side with the change. Right. Right. So getting into coaching more. Um you know the way the way I learned it was there's the 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 distinction of of therapy, which is obviously its own field with licensing in the past. There's consulting, which is telling people what to do, and coaching, which is um, you know a lot of question asking, mirroring, helping somebody understand, reflect, and everything like that. What I've found um, frustrating is I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this of what I see is a lack of pure coaching. So mm. to me, pure coaching it's it's I've heard a term called clean language. Where so, for example, um, if you're telling me that you're uh, you're feeling trapped in your job, clean language would be what does that feel like to be trapped? Whereas unclean language would be well, have you considered leaving? Because it's actually including an idea ra and, a, and rather than an actual just question. And mm -hmm. so I've found that working with various coaches. I've only found very few who know how to really hold that line of pure coaching. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Absolutely. Um, I think some of it also depends on what the client needs. Um, mm. And I think the commonality among coaching, consulting, and therapy, as you named, is that there is something about the client coming in and wanting to be seen and heard and wanting to be in the presence of a person who is there for nobody but them for that hour or 50 minutes or whatever it is. Um, that being said, there are distinctions and 
we have to be very careful as coaches not to uh, offer the solution. We're not consultants. We're not mentors. And the idea ultimately has to come from the client. That being said, we get out in the world into places that our clients don't go. And we have the ability to see commonalities in the work that we do among our clients across multiple sectors of the economy and in multiple nations. And I see a lot of the same issues arising often uh, from client to client to client, whether that's imposter syndrome or delegation or time, energy, and attention management. And my job is not to pretend to be the expert on those things, but when they come up, I do like to bring a little bit of the wisdom of other clients into the room when it's requested and when it's appropriate. Yeah. So when somebody is sitting down in a coaching session and they say, hey, Alan, what would one of your other clients do with this situation that I've got? Odds are I've probably got an answer to that question and mm. I'm going to answer it. Uh, but I'm not the guy who says you should quit your job or even have you considered quitting your job? <laughs> More like if they're asking for a list of options, we can work through those together. And anything that I offer is going to be in the realm of just a very lightly held offer rather than a direction or even a suggestion because yeah. that's not that's not the job. I don't know about you, but that was that took years for me to really embody you know, because I have so many ideas and thoughts and I want to offer them. And I see, oh, there's this opportunity for that. And cleaning that out took me a while at least. Oh, for sure. And the idea of coach the person, not the problem. Uh, you know, the problem is right there in front of you, but the person takes some digging sometimes to, to get into. And uh, we are very success and results driven. So if you come into your coaching session with me thinking, I would like to end with a list of three options for this problem that I am facing, that's very tangible. That's something that maybe nobody can even help you with in the working environment that you're in. So it's totally understandable you're going to bring something like that into a coaching session. And maybe we get to that, but maybe we also get to that by unpacking why is this an important list of questions for you right now? Or what's going on in your world that is causing you to doubt your own ability to solve this problem for yourself, where maybe last week you could have done it. So I think there's a lot that goes into questions like that. And I'm always interested to dig a little bit and find out what's going on there. Um, oftentimes, fortunately, the client is uh, is kind of willing to go along. Yeah. Do you do you lean on any kind of patterns? Like, for example, I, I, I've found that it, 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 it often comes down to that they're not taking care of themselves first and that we yeah. have to do. And if we're not starting there, like everything else doesn't go very well. Yeah, it's the afterthought, isn't it? And it's 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 weird because I I don't know about you, I'm I'm not getting any younger, and I've discovered, you know, my own physical limitations in many ways that were not apparent 20 years ago, uh, and 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 I think you're absolutely right. That is the foundation of everything. And sometimes clients will come in with that specific uh, topic in mind. You know, I would like to discover some ways to take care of myself better, and I'm not a fitness coach or a nutrition coach or anything like that, but. I have some sense of the things that work and the things that don't, uh, especially from other clients. Uh, but oftentimes that's not what they come in with, but that is kind of the underlying issue. And they are distracted. They are irritable. They are losing focus on the things that are most important to them in work or in life because there's just so much there. And we will explore a bit on how do you, you know, how do you unplug? How do you declare the boundary between work and home when they're both in the same physical space, you know, mm -hmm. since COVID. Um, and that's a fascinating conversation that a lot of folks maybe didn't even think they were up for, but they really need. Uh -huh. uh, and, and I've seen, you know, burnout aplenty. I've seen uh, conflicting priorities uh, with, with family and work aplenty in, in, in many clients. And I've experienced them myself. And 
again, the, this notion that the coach is not the expert, you know, I'm not the person who's here to tell you how to live your life. And I'm also not the person who's here to tell you if you follow these seven steps, you can have a life like mine because it's different for everybody. Right. And at the same time, you know, I'm working shorter days and shorter weeks as a coach, as a self-employed person than when I was working full-time for other people within organizations. And that's very intentional. I wanted that and I have it. So I do know that it is possible given the right set of conditions and helping people discover whatever their version of that is, even just a little bit is, is a joy of mine because it makes a big difference in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Do you use any kind of personality tests? Well, uh, I have, and I'm certified in Hogan. So I use Hogan a lot. Oh, for I've, I've heard great. Yeah. I've heard really good things about it. It's, it's a fun one. It provides a lot of good information. It's really useful. Uh, I also do everything disc, which is, uh, great for simplicity. You know, there's only four letters. Everybody can kind of glom onto it and understand the distinctions among those. Um, not licensed in, but I've seen a fair number of strengths finders and Myers-Briggs come across my desk since the time of becoming a coach. And those, those are always interesting. Um, did you ever take strengths finder? Uh, I did. And What's I couldn't tell you top, top one or two, my top five are, but, uh, there's definitely something about learning and education in there and, and, and curiosity in, in, in my top. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's been so long that I, I, I can't recall them off the top of my head. Um, with assessments, though, the, the one thing that I always say to any client when we're going to do a debrief, and it doesn't matter if it's Hogan or if it's Leadership Circle Profile 360, which I also do, is that this is not a diagnostic tool. Very important to make sure that they know that. So, you know, we have a shoulder injury, we go to a doctor, we get an MRI, they look at it like, oh, you have a tear or you need this and this is the physical therapy and here's where you're going to use ice. That's not what assessments are for me and for my clients. Assessments are a moment in time snapshot of the mind of whoever was providing the data. If it's a 360, it's other people. If it's a Hogan or something else, it's the client. They're highly contextual. They can change over time. And the main thing to me is not necessarily what the assessment says, but what we choose to have it mean. So if we come out of one of these assessments and we see in our Hogan that this is an especially strong aspect of what we bring to work every day, and we decide we're going to recognize that strength and also not lean too heavily on it to the point where it becomes not a strength anymore, that's a great result of an assessment rather than I'm going to spend hours or days you know, digesting these potentially terrible things about myself that I've discovered from what I said or what other people said about me. So not something to figure out what the problem is necessarily, but figure out where the strengths are and build on them or figure out where there are areas of curiosity, call it, that you want to build into a little bit more as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. So this, since this is the Culture Hackers podcast, I have to ask, does the word culture come up in these conversations with clients? It does. It does. And I think it comes up in a number of different ways. One, if it's somebody within an organization, how well does what they bring to the table fit the culture that is already there? That's something that we talk about a lot, whether we use the culture word or not. And the second is, when a leader doesn't realize fully what is at their disposal in terms of the culture that they can create. And that I think is almost a magical conversation because you have the ability to influence so much from your position, even just with your words, even just with the way you interact with people. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a power that a lot of leaders hold without realizing. And, and that sort of untapped potential is just fascinating to me. Yeah. So you and I both come from a media background too, with uh, with with journalism, with being yeah, on screen, that type of thing. And I think that we both 
value this ability to speak almost in sound bites, concisely to the point, answer the question. Do you, is is that a bias that you think we have just being in media, or do you think that's a good leadership quality? I think it's both, honestly. Uh, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about sales and how that's kind of a bad thing or a negative or it's icky, and I get it. And every leader has to sell an idea to an audience. Doesn't matter if it's people who report to them or their boss or the board or stakeholders. You have to be able to express something concisely and make sure that people get it. And I think that's something that was hammered into my head early on from my days of working on the high school newspaper all the way through college and beyond. Some people, it's not natural to them. Some people like to kind of show the work behind everything that they're saying or every decision that they make. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's such a useful skill. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be a communicator or a filmmaker to have it. And you need it. So uh, sometimes it's not something that happens terribly often because I'm not a straight up communications coach, but sometimes I'll have clients who are having trouble expressing things concisely and they've been told that it's one of the things they bring into coaching with them. And we just play around with it a little bit. You know, everybody can make an elevator pitch. Everybody can have a quick conversation with the person sitting next to them on the airplane about what's important about what they do or what they find interesting. Uh, even if it's something that they have to work at and it's not something that they feel like is a natural way of, of expressing themselves in the world. Yeah. The concept I like to, to share with them is the whole idea of, you know, really leading with the lead in, yes. in the sense of, I, I find, I don't know if you found it, but sometimes somebody's telling me a story and I don't know what to listen for. I don't know who, even sometimes who I am in this story. Am I supposed to be listening as, as an employee, as a friend, as somebody giving you an answer? Um, why are you going in this, in this direction? Cause they know why they're going in that direction, but I have no idea. So I'm like, you got, you got to lead with the lead. I think you're absolutely right. And I think to some extent, uh, the fragmentation of our communications and the way that we have come to communicate has helped us a little bit in that you've got to grab somebody within a few characters or they're just going to move on to something else. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot not to like about social media, but in terms of the ability to put the best words forward and to have them, you know, right there off the bat, that that's very helpful. Um, in journalism school, uh, in college, I had a professor who used to say, make me care. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember very little else about what that class experience was like, but I remember those three words because you've got to do it right off the bat. Uh, and that sort of, why am I sitting here listening to this story is never a good look for somebody who's trying to win you over for an idea or for something they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like the, the, the new skills are really important. I, I'm finding for leaders because they, a frustration I've seen them have is that they're frustrated that people don't understand what's going on in the company or what's available to them. And I don't think they realize they're somewhat in the news business of, because I, I have this experience in leadership too, where you'll tell somebody something and they'll say you never told them it, but you have to, to stay on message. You have to repeat it. You have to get it sometimes in bite-sized chunks. At Zappos, we would even use um, uh, GIFs and just small lines in the communication, make sure it wasn't a long one for them to read. So, um, you know, you've got a background in broadcast journalism. Would you say, would you say leaders are also in the news business? hundred percent they are. And I've, I've established internal communications jobs within organizations for that very reason. You have an audience inside that is at least as important as the audience outside, if not more so, because these are the folks who are carrying, you know, your brand into the world. These are the folks who are actually making the work happen. And uh, people need to stay informed and they need to know you as a leader. They need to know a little bit about you as the person and who who they're reporting up to and, and why, you know, you should why they should be on your side and why they should care. And 
you don't get that through, you know, just the occasional uh, 14 page email about strategic priorities and that sort of thing, <laughs> you know, and, and this is why I like internal podcasts and internal videos and town hall meetings and things that people do to engage their workforce, because we have a lot of choice in terms of where we're going to work and people don't stay in jobs for 20 or 30 or even 10 years anymore, a lot of the time. And I think connection with leaders goes a long way to keeping people engaged and keeping them in their, in their positions. Yeah. As you as you speak through any of that, is, do you miss any of that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. No, not at all. Uh, watching it from afar and kind of guiding it through coaching and uh, being on the sidelines uh, is, is great. And, and honestly, and I know you and I have had this conversation before, but I graduated from journalism school in 1997 and my brief local TV news career was over by the year 2000. And when I was in it, I felt like I was in it 20 years too late. So at the time, there were already budget cuts. There were already, you know, positions being eliminated and consolidations in the industry and over commercialization. And so the, you know, the 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 glory days of television news that I grew up watching when I was a kid in the Chicago area were were, were long gone. So the inspiration remained, and that's why I was there. But I I don't know how you would do it in terms of having a career in media today. Honestly, it's it, it's tough. Yeah. Well, our our uh, our our fellow schoolmate Peter Alexander did it. <laughs> Yes, he was he was the one who kind of rocketed to the top. Uh, and, and and I suppose there's one in every bunch and his his skill and his timing and everything else are are, are magnificent and, and to be admired. But, you know, uh, in a class of, I don't know, a couple hundred alumni, uh, maybe there's going to be one Peter Alexander, but uh, maybe not even one. Yeah, I have to ask you your thoughts on 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 news in general, because I think um especially having having been in it at the end of the day is news just entertainment because what are we really going to do about it what do you think maybe i mean I, I i like to be optimistic enough and maybe naive enough to think that there are still serious practitioners doing serious work in a serious way and maybe they're approaching it with a different set of ethics or a different set of obligations than let's say somebody who's making a horror movie. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I know journalists put in a lot of time and effort and energy and they, you know, there are, there are shield laws and first amendment and, and freedom of the press and all of that good stuff. I mean, I, I think what you're asking though is, is not the approach, but the outcome as in at the end of the day, does it matter given that we consume those two different types of media in very similar ways and we're maybe motivated to act or not act uh, accordingly. I, I I don't know. I still think there are, you know, well-informed people in the world who base their activities on on what they're seeing and hearing and, and wanting to change in the world. Uh, is it most people? Don't know. You know, is somebody going to jump up and, and, you know, demand a legislative change or a rulemaking because of something they saw on TikTok? Not sure. Um but I, I do think being an informed consumer is important. I do think there is a crisis in local news in the United States where, uh, you know, even papers like my beloved Chicago Tribune of childhood have been bought by, you know, private equity and just just gutted to the studs to, to save money. And I'm like, how are we supposed to find out about things? How are we supposed to know what the city council and the school board are doing so we can make sure that our kids are going to have a better you know learning environment than we did? Um I don't have answers to any of these things, uh, but I hope there's a way forward because there always has been throughout history. And and, and for us to say, you know, media and, 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 and civic life and public awareness are just like broken, full stop, next subject is, is, is kind of 
it makes me irritated. <laughs> well, something not irritating I read on your in your profile was I was surprised and happy to see it. You're you're um you use Legos. I do. Right? Serious Play Legos, which is for those of you who don't know, Serious Play is the division of Lego that they created as kind of like a corporate consulting where they have all these different Lego pieces that you can design systems processes with. I remember doing it at one point where they said like shape what the organization looks like. And we each had to do it with these Legos and, and, and form it. So um, I, I've only done that once. I've been so curious about it. Is it something you, you use still? Um, what's, what's your thoughts on the whole Lego play as corporate coach and consultant? Yeah, it's, it's fairly new. So I've only been doing it for about half a year. I just got certified in, in California in September of 2023. And so far, it is it is fascinating in terms of its ability to bring a group of people together and get them centered on a topic or an idea or a question. And what I especially appreciate about it is the methodology is great at drawing out ideas from people who might shut down otherwise in a conventional mm. retreat or offsite or even just you know conference room or on the whiteboard kind of environment because those people can get stuck in their heads or they can get drowned out by the loudest voices or they can have sensory issues or not be uh, conversant as much in the dominant language of, of the meeting. And none of that matters when you've got a pile of bricks in front of somebody and you say, uh, build me a model of the worst meeting you ever had with a client or, <laughs> you know, build me a model of your workplace of the future or whatever it is. And then you're inviting people to make connections between the model that their neighbor made and explained and their own model. Mm. Uh, it's almost like uh, th th there's this sort of involuntary activity that happens with folks who are using this methodology where their hands are acting before their mind is thinking in a way that they can express. Yeah, that's interesting. The whole like the almost the unconscious subconscious is coming through on a different level. Um, you know, I, I notice it, especially with body language. And I look for it even in the media. You know, when somebody scratches their nose, that means they're kind of uncertain what they're saying. Somebody starts to, that you know, these kind of things. Do you work with the with that subconscious unconscious at all? I try to. And, you know, I've studied, you know, this much of somatics. And it's an area that's very interesting to me. And I know people build their entire practices on it. Um, I think like you, um, the tells become apparent after a while, after you've worked with enough clients. And I think one of the things that our clients depend on us for is that kind of outside perspective that they're not getting anywhere else. So if I've got a client who's sitting and they're just kind of slumped in their chair, mm. that's a clue. I'm going to ask about that. If they're changing positions a lot during the course of the conversation, if there are fluctuations in energy level, that's a clue. I'm going to ask about that. And they may not even know that it's happening mm -hmm. uh, because some of these things are so almost imperceptible as you're doing them that, that you don't pick up on it while it happens. Right. Um, and maybe they don't understand what it is. Maybe they can't explain it. Or maybe they're like, you know, that's true. When I was describing that one relationship I have with this one person on my team, I was sitting on my elbows sideways. Hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and they're not getting this kind of feedback or this kind of questioning anywhere else, whether it's the somatic stuff where you notice things or the, uh, you know, the facial expressions are not matching the words mm -hmm. to even something that sounds like an excuse and you're going to call it out and ask them about it. You know, when you're a leader, no one on your team is going to do that, mm -hmm. but I can because I get to keep my house and I get to stay married if, you know, if you're not thrilled with the results of one conversation we're going to have, you know. Uh, so it gives us a little bit of freedom and flexibility as that outside 
you know, kind of disinterested third party that I think is is really refreshing. Uh, and I've needed it at times as a leader myself. And I know a lot of leaders do. Yeah. So who's who's your ideal client? Love that question. Was actually just working on a blog post about it right before we spoke today. <laughs> nice. And I have a couple of answers, but I also want to be clear that I'm not hyper-specific in my focus on one use case. Mm -hmm. In that, I can tell you, you know, I'm the coach for left-handed introverts who were born in the first half of an even-numbered year. And okay, you know, maybe I dedicate my entire practice to trying to find just that person. And maybe mm -hmm. there's enough of them out there to try to make a living on. Don't know. Uh, what I do know is that a couple of things I kind of specialize in often, and one is fellow introverts who are working in an extroverted leadership environment or have kind of extrovert style demands placed on them. And the other is leaders who have had or are seeking some sort of a professional transition. So that's going to be uh, a change of career, possibly a retirement. I've seen a few of those, but also they're a director and they recently got promoted to VP for the first time and they're needing some scaffolding to kind of make it a smooth transition up. I see that a lot. So I don't like to typecast myself and I occasionally get somebody who doesn't fit the use case at all. And it's a big, fascinating, wonderful kind of coaching engagement, but that's, that's the main focus. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what would you say to other people who are listening, who are in a position you were in before this, who want to be more of a consultant, want to be a coach? I mean, I, I like, I, I think of coaching, it's almost like Hollywood in the sense of there's a million actors, but very few who get paid to do it and only paid to do that. Right. So it's, you're, you, you know, I know you to be an all-star, but even if I didn't, that you're getting paid to do it signifies that because you couldn't stay in business otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, so how, how did you do that? I think a couple of things come to mind and, and I'm not, uh, a person who typically embraces a lot of risk. You know, I'm, I'm a fairly cautious person. So to me, I had to be secure enough in the idea that this would work before I would even do it. Mm. Uh, so I started coaching on the side a little bit when I had a full-time job and I would coach a couple of people on the West coast. I'm on the East coast. So I do it, you know, at home at night or take a lunch break or a couple of days of PTO here and there. And to me, that was a little bit of proof of concept that I could number one, do it. Number two, that people liked it. And number three, that I could get paid to do it. So I did that, uh, saved up some money. So I got to the point where if we didn't make anything at all from the coaching practice in the first six months, not great, but we'd be okay. And then we would figure it out from that point forward. And, and it was not, you know, a three-year break and taking myself out of the workforce and, and, and losing contacts that I wouldn't be able to jump back into work somehow if it wasn't workable. Uh, and from there, it was just kind of the snowball of, of word of mouth and referrals and connections and also um, getting myself comfortable with the idea of reaching out to this substantial network of people I had built up in a couple of decades of communications work for government and nonprofits and saying, hey, I'm here. I'm doing this thing that is different. And here's why it's important to me. And here's why you should care. And I'd like your help with it, if you don't mind. Mm. Uh, getting over that hump, I think, is what hangs up a lot of people who are trying something new. And that could even be, by the way, a new career that's different from the one they had before, where they're still working within organizations, but they have to raise their hand and say, I'm doing this thing that's different now. Uh, it's yeah. scary. It's hard. Uh, but it's essential. Um, so again, not going to be the person to sit here and say, follow these easy seven steps and you can have a life like mine. Uh, but that's kind of the journey that I took. And really, if there's any message at all that I would share, uh, and, and I share this with all my folks who come in and they're looking for some sort of a change or a transition, is to look as broadly as you can and then try to look even more broadly at what might be possible. 
because none of the rules that we learned about in school about how to find a job and how to launch a career really apply that much anymore. And you can do a lot of things from, you know, friends of mine who in their early 40s saved up a bunch of money, sold their house, and they're traveling around for a year. They quit both of their jobs. Call it a mid-career retirement or a pause or a sabbatical, whatever. Have a close friend who lives in Ohio. She's over 50. She quit her job, went back, got a new associate's degree in a new line of work, and now she's looking for a job. So not too late to reinvent yourself at any age, not too late to work a little or a lot if you want to. And this notion of I'm going to just like absolutely crush it for one employer, maybe two till I turn 62, 65, 67, and then stop working entirely. That's not the script anymore. Yeah. 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 So what's, uh, what's your future entail now? Really good question. Uh, still thinking about that, you know, kind of on a daily and a, and a yearly basis. I'm, I'm raising a high schooler who's, uh, you know, 14 now. So I think there's going to be college in the future and what that means for her and, and the rest of the family in terms of how we spend our time is kind of up in the air at the moment. Um, a little bit too early for her to be thinking about it, I suppose, but I'm thinking about it a lot these days mm -hmm. uh, and uh, kind of waiting to see where this business is going to take me because it's it's gone to some unexpected places already. You mentioned Lego. Uh, I've had the opportunity to travel around the world and, and do that in some, some different spots. So uh, really looking forward to learning more about this craft and meeting more people who are doing it and just seeing where the journey takes me without having that, you know, clear, okay, in five years, this is the destination. So let's just spend all our energy trying to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any dream clients or dream organizations you want to work with? Oh, there's so many, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of them are probably already in your contact list. Uh, but I, I do, I do intend to spend a lot of energy serving nonprofits and organizations that are trying to make social change. So that's on the radar screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had a few kind of unexpected surprises in the things that I've learned about through the lens of people that I've coached. So I know, for example, a lot more about frozen foods than I did when I was in journalism school and doing government communications. Um, but to answer your question a little more directly, I, I'd love to do some more federal government work. That's always fascinating. And, and you know they need it because there's folks out there, you know, plugging away, doing the hard stuff. Uh, I'd love to do some more work in educational institutions because I enjoy that too. Uh, but the the healthcare and the finance and the other industries I've been able to touch have, have all been fascinating as well. Awesome. Awesome. So where can people find out more about you? My website is peacefuldirection.com. There's a contact form on it. I also spend way more time than I should on LinkedIn, which is the only social media I use right now. So uh, if somebody wants to hit me up with a message there, that's always a good way to connect also. Yeah, I remember that's Alan Heyman, H-E-Y-M-A-N-N uh, -E -N -N, and peacefuldirection.com. Yes, sir. Peacefuldirection.com. Awesome, Alan. Thanks for being on with us for the Culture Hackers podcast. It's been such a pleasure, Robert. Really appreciate this time with you and your audience. And uh, I think you're one of the longest running podcasts I know. So to be able to kind of uh, sit in on it after I've been listening for all these years is, is a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you.